with Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 39, where we'll start. Uh, Maybe a dozen years ago, a group of atheists launched an advertising campaign in our nation's capital. It was around the holidays, and the tagline was, Why believe in a God? Just be good, for goodness sake. You don't need God. You don't need to believe in God. Just be good. Goodness without God. Goodness without Jesus. That, in some ways, is the temptation that the original Hebrew, uh, the original hearers, thank you, Ken, of Hebrews are facing. Though they didn't even have to give up on God, they were just being tempted to give up on Jesus. For them, the temptation was to go back to the Jewish synagogue, to leave Jesus behind and to settle for the law of Moses, the Hebrew scriptures, and belief in the God of those scriptures, but without Jesus. After all, Jesus was trouble. Their belief in Jesus and that Jesus was the true king, the true Messiah and Lord of Israel and of the whole world was getting them persecuted. It was causing them lots of problems, big problems. So why not just skip the Jesus part and go back to the synagogue? In the synagogue, they'd still have their Bible and all it taught them about being good, about being God's people. They'd still have the one true God. Have you ever been tempted to quit on Jesus? I have several times. At times, it was my intellectual questions and doubts. Arguments against Christianity can feel so compelling the first time you hear them. And at times, my faith has been shaken by those arguments. And I've had to work through my doubts, and I've had to investigate the arguments in more detail that others were making against Christianity to see if there was any validity to them. But the other reason I've been tempted at certain points in my life to quit on Jesus um, is probably a bigger reason, and it's closer to the reason that the first hearers of Hebrews were tempted to quit. It had to do with life getting tough, with uh, when life has been very hard and painful and God has seemed far off and um, In some cases, God has seemed far off when I needed God most. For me, this was especially true in my 20s. I was maybe four or five years into my faith journey and my relationship with Jesus, and the excitement was wearing off. And I I think often when we're brand new in our relationship with Jesus, Jesus heaps the blessings on for us. He draws us close. He... um, makes his presence very real and very wonderful. It's like you do for any baby, any newborn, in this case, a spiritual newborn. You nurture them, you cuddle them, you spoon feed them, you make everything warm and safe and comfortable for them. You don't ask too much of them. And that's often, though not always, but often the experience of those who are new in the Christian faith. But get a little older, and God says, okay, time to grow up. Time to take some responsibility. Time to experience some bumps and bruises as you go out and live life. Time to develop character 
So you learn to be faithful whether it always feels good or not. And so then often you go through a spiritual adolescence. You question what God is doing. Maybe you get angry with God at times. Maybe you pull away from God a bit as your heart is wounded. You test your wings, your independence. You ask hard questions. You push the boundaries. It's part of growing up. It's part of maturing. Now, just to give you a sense of this uh, being the experience, some of this, of the original hearers of Hebrews, look at chapter 10, verses 32 and following. The author of Hebrews is reminding them of the early days of their faith, how wonderful those times were and how committed they were. Ironically, they weren't easy days. They were experiencing actually trials and persecutions, but evidently their passion for Jesus and their sense of God's closeness through those hard times must have been so strong that they sailed through. Listen, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Can you imagine joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property? (laughs) The government comes, they take your new car. They take your house that you've worked so hard all these years for, and you're joyful about it because you have Jesus and he's so much better. And you're so happy for the opportunity to suffer for him, to stand with him and prove your loyalty to him. That's some passion for Jesus. And that's how this group of Jesus followers began. But now, years later, the hearers of Hebrews aren't feeling it so much anymore. Maybe they're thinking of those old days in the past, remembering how they were persecuted and thinking now about how painful it was and and thinking, oh, not again. I, I thought we put those times behind us. I don't think we can go through that again. Once bit, twice shy, as they say, right? They're at a different place spiritually, and they're not feeling the passion that maybe they did in the past when they were baby Christians. The shine has worn off. The first flush of love has grown cold. The honeymoon with Jesus is over. That was my experience in my mid to late 20s as I went through hard and painful seasons of life, and I wrestled and I struggled with my faith. And it's something like what the the hearers of Hebrews are maybe facing too. They're tempted to give up. Again, not to give up on God altogether, but to give up on Jesus and to find a more comfortable religion back in the Jewish synagogue. And Hebrews has been addressed to them to urge them in the most strong possible terms not to give up on Jesus. As we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we've been seeing all the reasons why, right? 
We've enjoyed chapter after chapter all about Jesus and what a great high priest Jesus is and what an amazing sacrifice he's made for us and how he has enabled us to enjoy open access to God's presence and has helped us to draw close to God like never before. Before that, in the opening chapters of Hebrews, we saw how Jesus is a better, clearer revelation of who God is than the Old Testament scriptures give. And how Jesus is greater than any angel or other heavenly being. And how Jesus is better than the law of Moses. All of those positive encouragements right through the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews to stick with Jesus no matter what. But now for a moment, the author of Hebrews flips it around and looks at the negative. Not what's so good about sticking with Jesus, but instead, what would be so bad about leaving Jesus? Kind of like if we're on a fall camp out and we're enjoying the campfire and we're focusing on all the good things about the campfire, the the warmth, the light, the s'mores, the campfire songs, the, the laughter, the stories. But then for a minute, we turn away from the campfire and we look out at the cold darkness at our backs. Instead of focusing on what's good, what we're enjoying about the campfire, our camp counselor has us turn around and warns us about why it would be bad to wander out into the dark. And that's what the passages we're looking at this morning are doing for us. They're warning us in the strongest possible terms that now that Jesus has come and we're enjoying his salvation, there's no way back to God any other way. In addition to verses 26 to 39 of chapter 10, we're going back this morning, as as Janet read, to to pick up a few verses in in chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. I don't know if you noticed that we skipped those verses when we were back in chapter 6, partly because we had a guest speaker at that time, and these are tough verses, and I didn't want to saddle him with them. But now is a good time to pick them up, because they're a lot like our verses in chapter 10. These are both strong scriptures, strong warnings. They're tough passages, actually, for a lot of reasons. In fact, they've been at the center of much controversy and argument among Christians over the years. One question these passages raise is the question of unpardonable sins. Are there sins so bad that if you commit them, you can't be forgiven and you're destined for judgment? This comes up in chapter 10, verse 26, for example, where we're warned, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And then also in chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gifts, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Tough warnings, right? It seems from these verses like there's a certain road that if you go down that road, there's no coming back. You are lost forever. 
The other big question that, that these verses raise, a related one, kind of the converse, is whether once we're saved, are we always saved no matter what? Or can we lose our salvation? Chapter 6, verse 6 uses the language of falling away. And the question is, is it possible to fall away, to lose our salvation? And so these passages have been argued back and forth by theologians. And for sensitive Christians who are struggling with sins, many have fearfully asked over the years, is is the sin I'm struggling with the unpardonable one? I've had people ask me that question. Do my struggles mean I'm losing my salvation, that I'm doomed to God's judgment? Well, I think the key to understanding these two passages, as is so often the case with passages of Scripture, is to read them in context. Not to pull them out of Hebrews and, you know, lob them at our theological opponents to support our arguments, but to try to understand them in context, in the context of who Hebrews is addressed to and why it was said to them and what's going on in the lives of the original hearers. And then also in the context of the larger argument of Hebrews that the author is making. Remember, the first hearers of Hebrews are thinking of leaving behind Jesus and going back to the synagogue. But they have no intention of being unfaithful to God, the God of the Bible. They want to be faithful. They're just thinking, why can't we be faithful to God without this fellow Jesus who's causing us so much trouble? And the author of Hebrews is jumping up and down and saying in every way he or she can think of, no, 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 no! Don't you realize Jesus is everything? Jesus is the fulfillment the one to whom God and the scriptures have been pointing all along. Everything's been pointing to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, scripture after scripture, the whole story, the whole journey, it's arriving at Jesus. There's no going back. There's no going around. There's no other way. Jesus is what it's all about. Jesus is everything. And then here comes the warning. And if you leave Jesus behind, if you turn your back on Jesus, you're lost. There's nothing left for you. There's nothing else God has to offer you. It's Jesus or nothing at all. Jesus or the fearful expectation of God's wrath. There's no way back. This reminds me of of Lord of the Rings. When the group of travelers early in the story face that long and dangerous journey through the weaving underground tunnels of a mountain. I think it was Mount, Mount Moria. They were tempted on that journey to give up and to go back. It was so dark and depressing. At times, it was so easy to get lost. There were fierce goblins in the mountain. But along the way, as they, as they journeyed forward, the path back, 
the path behind them increasingly got cut off to them. Tunnels got blocked. Underground bridges collapsed. And pretty soon, there was no way back. They had to go forward. And that's the message of these two passages. Let's see how this plays out in them. First, going back to chapter 6. Let me read it again, and as I do, listen for how Jewish the language is, how it's borrowed from the experience of the Israelites in the desert with Moses. Verse 4, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. This word enlightened could also be translated, had, had light shined on them. And so think of the pillar of fire by night, which lit the way for the Israelites in their wanderings. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift, think of the manna that God fed them with. Those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, think of God's holy presence with them, a cloud by day, fire by night, that cloud filling the tabernacle as they journeyed through the wilderness. Those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, think of Moses bringing the Israelite God's word down from Mount Sinai. And think of the powerful miracles they experienced first uh, to Egypt or in Egypt and then in the desert. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, you have experienced all of this too. Enlightened. You've had the light, the message about Jesus shared with you, and the lights have turned on in your mind and in your heart. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You have celebrated communion. You have feasted in your hearts by faith on Jesus. You have shared the Holy Spirit. You've felt him and seen his presence as those around you have used their spiritual gifts, as you've, you've seen lives changed and experienced the fruit of the Spirit in lives and characters. You've tasted the word of God as it's been taught and preached and you've heard God speaking to you through it. And you've tasted the power of the coming age as miracles have happened in your midst. Lives have trans been transformed. People have been healed and set free. Prayers have been answered. And so the author of Hebrews says, given all of that, it's impossible if now you fall away, verse 6, to be brought back to repentance. Such people, to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has given you all of this, and now if you want to leave Jesus and go back to the synagogue, you're saying both to your fellow believers who you're leaving behind and to those in the synagogue you want to join, you know, that Jesus thing? doesn't really matter. His sacrifice, his blood shed on the cross for us, it's not that important. We don't need Jesus. We're good without him. You see, we have to understand the culture of life back then. Life, people lived in very small houses, very small areas. Life was very communal, extended family, neighbors, small villages, small neighborhoods. Everyone was in everyone else's business all the time. Some of you have lived in cultures like that. 
Nobody was going to just slip out the back door of church and quietly slide into the pew down at the synagogue. If you switched, everyone would know and would be talking about it. It would be a big deal. It would be a big statement. You'd in effect be saying to both communities, Jesus is not worth anything. He's not really the Lord. You'd in effect be subjecting Jesus to public disgrace, as the author of Hebrews puts it. Like those who crucified him, saying, he's not the king of the Jews. That's what you'd be saying. He's not the king of the Jews. The author of Hebrews is saying, if you go this route, you are siding with Jesus' enemies. And here's the stark part. You can't be brought back to repentance again once you've done that. Now, let me try to make really clear what I think this warning is saying and what it's not saying. I think what it's saying is this. There is now no other way to turn back to God except through Jesus Christ. That's what repentance means, to turn back to God. It means you turn from living life however you want to live it, and you say, you know, I need to get right with God and to follow God's way for my life. And so I'm going to turn from my way, and I'm going to go God's way. That's repentance. And I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is that there's no other option, no other way to do this besides through Jesus. You won't find a way to get right with God in the synagogue. Not anymore. The synagogue was fine before Jesus came, but now that he's arrived, he's the only way. Just maybe some problems they're having on Zoom. Hope everything's going okay on Zoom, but I'll put the phone away so it doesn't distract us. So what I'm saying is, I don't think this passage is about whether you can fall away from Jesus so badly that Jesus will never take you back. I don't think it's that if you fall away from your faith, it's impossible to repent again and come back to Jesus. I think what it's saying is that if you fall away from Jesus, you're not going to find repentance. You're not going to find another way back to God anywhere else. So don't turn back from Jesus in the first place because there's no other way back to God except through him. Are you following what I'm suggesting? I think what this passage is warning us of is this. If you fall away from Jesus, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance, back to God, a different way. Because Jesus is the only way. So here's the question, though. Well, if I or someone I love falls away from Jesus now, can I or they come back to Jesus later, right? Can we be brought back to repentance through Jesus again? And I think the answer to this question is that the passage isn't contemplating this question. It's being written to those who haven't left Jesus yet and don't intend to leave God at all, just Jesus. And Hebrews is warning them ahead of time, there's no way back to God apart from Jesus. So don't leave in the first place. 
Now, why do I think this? Don't worry, I'll get to the question. <laughs> Not because it's a more comfortable way to think about this passage, but because of many other scriptures. Like, for instance, Ephesians. I have written down chapter 8, verse 18, but it, it can't be chapter 8. Maybe chapter 3, 4, 5, verse 18, one of those. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Romans 8, verses 28, uh, 38 to 39, Paul adds, For I'm convinced that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 10, 27 and 28, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish for no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. It seems like from other scriptures like these that Jesus is willing to hang in there in love with us through an awful lot. And to keep forgiving us. Remember he told Peter we have to forgive 70 times 7? And keep loving us and keep welcoming us. That God's love through Jesus Christ is unconditional. That it's patient. That it's enduring. That Jesus is willing to welcome us back like he did for Peter after Peter denied him. Like a prodigal son. Whenever we want to come back to Jesus. And so that leads me to believe that when Hebrews says there's no repentance left for those who fall away, it means no repentance left for those outside of Christ alone. Now it's possible I'm wrong, but regardless, the point is clear. Don't give up on Jesus. If you do, you're giving up everything. Keep going forward on your journey with Jesus because there's no way back to God apart from him. And then to drive this home, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6, they pick up a common theme in the Bible, in Isaiah, in Jesus' parables, that of God's word being like a seed and us being like soil. Land, soil, that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop, useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Be good soil, the author of Hebrews is urging us. Respond positively to the word about Jesus. Don't give up on him. Hang in there through thick and thin and be faithful so that you will bear good fruit for God. All right, let's move on to the other passage in chapter 10. As if chapter 6 wasn't enough. <laughs> chapter 10 begins, or our passage in verse 26 begins, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire. The question here is, what does the author of Hebrews mean by, if we deliberately keep on sinning? Are they talking about that young couple who knows they should wait until they're married, but they choose to be intimate now anyway? 
Or that churchgoer who's heard all those tithing sermons but continually refuses to put more than 20 bucks in the offering plate? Does this warning mean that as followers of Jesus, if there's an area of our life where we refuse to obey Jesus or can't seem to overcome a certain temptation, that God's forgiveness runs out and we're doomed to judgment? I don't think so. Though there's certainly a wake-up call here for all of us. But again, remember the context. The people Hebrews is written to are considering giving up on Jesus altogether and going back to a religion without Jesus. Verse 29, I think, clarifies what Hebrews means by deliberately keep sinning in this context. It talks about someone who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Who's he describing here? Or who's being described here? I think it's someone who has walked away from Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice and the Holy Spirit. And said, don't need those anymore. Don't want them. I'm good without them. Remember, the original, Hebrews of, original hearers of Hebrews, they, they aren't intending to give up on God or to give up on being good. They're just tossing aside Jesus or thinking about it. And so I think verse 29 would be really jolting to them. To give up on Jesus and try to worship God another way is to deliberately keep on sinning. That's what Hebrews warns. It's to rebel against God. It's to displease God. It's to fall short of God's expectations for you. Because God wants you more than anything to accept Jesus, his son, as your king and as your savior and to follow him wholeheartedly. And if you refuse that, you're refusing God. You're sinning. And there's no way back to God any other way. And the punishment you'll receive, Hebrews says, is like those in the Old Testament when verse 28 adds about those who murdered, those who kidnapped, etc. The Old Testament law said if, if this sin is confirmed, if two or three witnesses corroborate it, then stone that person to death. They deserve the death penalty. And Hebrews is like, if the death penalty applied to taking someone's life or some other similar crime, how much more should it apply if you trample underfoot God's own son by rejecting him, by leaving him, by letting him have died for nothing, saying he doesn't matter, that he's not worth it? Strong words, right? Certainly not politically correct words. Well, then the author of Hebrews ends on a positive note, verse 39, saying, but that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You're not leavers. You're not those who are going to turn back and be destroyed. But rather, you're those who have faith in Jesus. Who are going to persevere and to be saved. Keep up the faith. 
We'll see that in the next chapter. Keep up the faith. Even though it's tough, even though it's costing you now, even though you're suffering and being persecuted for your commitment to Jesus, keep it up because you will be rewarded. Jesus is coming back for his faithful followers and he will give you, verse 36, everything he's promised. Last month, we all watched with strong emotions Afghanistan quickly and surprisingly fall to the Taliban. And very suddenly, they controlled all the land routes in and out of the country. And the only way out was the Kabul airport. And people were fleeing to the airport, right? They were forcing their way in, desperate to escape the Taliban. Some of them had collaborated against the Taliban, opposing them in previous wars. And they were now afraid of terrible reprisals to themselves and their family. And so with all other roads closed, their only desperate hope was to catch a flight out of that airport. And that kind of urgency is what Hebrews is trying to instill in us. When it comes to the biblical story, the story of Israel and the Jews and God's working with them, it all comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He's the culmination and the only way to freedom. All other roads are now closed. So stick with Jesus no matter what. There's no other way back to God. Let's pray. God, these are very strong words. And um, we're reminded that you love us enough not to pull punches or um, not tell us what we need to hear or what's really true. And I pray that it would be true for each of us that we would not be among those who shrink back and are destroyed, but that we would be those who hold fast in faith and are saved as we look forward to the promise that Jesus has to share with us when he comes back. Amen.